All right, good morning, everybody. In case you're sitting there thinking, man, this is the coolest worship service EBF has had all year, there's a very good reason for that. It's all these amazing people in their green Docs t-shirts. We are the EBF Youth Ministry, um, and uh, the, youth, the students are running the joint today. And they're doing an awesome job, in my opinion. And so we're doing this today for a couple reasons. One reason is that we want the students to know that there aren't really any closed doors for them here at EBF. They can be involved in the church. They can be involved in even leadership opportunities. And, uh, and we want them to know that they're a valuable, important you know, part of our, our congregation. Um, and the other thing is I, we want you to see, I want you to see how awesome they are. I want you to be impressed with them because I get to work with them week after week and I get to know each of them a little bit better each week and they're amazing people. They are phenomenal. I respect them so much as followers of Christ and I'm so proud that I get to work with them and encourage them and try to challenge them in their faith. Um, And I just, I, I, no joke, I walk out of youth group on a regular basis thinking on Sunday night thinking, I got to step it up. I got to do better. I got to work hard if I'm going to keep up with these students because they're awesome. And, uh, and I'm going to have to work hard if I want to a, a, do a good job of encouraging them. So, so see them and I hope that, uh, that you realize that EBF has a really awesome youth ministry going on here. And, uh, and I'm excited about it. I'm excited to show it off to you a little bit today. Um, so this morning we're going to talk about, I get to continue on in Revelations chapter 3. And, uh, and the message today, the sermon is about sin. That's what I'm going to talk about. I'm just going to talk about sin, because um, that's what Christ is addressing to, uh, to the church in Sardis. Um, so in case you've heard one too many sermons about sin, and uh, are a little bit tuned out to it, I just want to give you one blanket statement, that if you just forget everything I say, I, I'm okay with that, I won't be offended. I just want this to stick in your mind. I want you to carry this one with you, okay? The statement is this. When it comes to sin, you are either repenting of sin or you are protecting it. You are either repenting of sin or you are protecting it. Let me open this up with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, I pray that as we we dive into the book of Revelation today, uh, that it would speak to us, that it would not just be um, message of prophecy that seems irrelevant for the moment, um, either it's too old or it's too far in the future, um, that we don't see how significant it is now, Lord. I pray that you, we would realize just how important this message is. I pray that, God, we would be honest before you, that we would be real before you. I pray that our hearts would be really soft and sensitive to the effects of sin in our life uh, so that we would be motivated to deal with it. And, uh, and be clean and, and, and wear those white garments before you, God. And so I just pray that, uh, um, God, that you would teach us something about ourselves and how we ought to handle sin in our lives and in our community as a church. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So I do like to exercise. I'm not sure if that's obvious, but I like to exercise. And uh, there's two things that I like to do. Um, anything else that I do for exercise is really so I can get better at these two things. The two things are biking and running. Those are my favorite choices of, of modes of ex- exercise. And, uh, and I, I do both I, every week. I, I try to get out and do both of those on a regular basis. Uh, but they both like, they're both very different to me. They both, they're very different experiences. Uh, biking is so fun. And I, it's my, by far my favorite thing to do. I really enjoy biking. And so the experience of 
pedaling my bike, you know, this, powering this machine under me and riding around and seeing all the things that I see and being able to move, maneuver around and cruise really fast and all that, like, it's just so fun for me. I just, I just have a great time doing it. And so it doesn't really matter how many hours I'm riding and I get really tired, I get exhausted and I, uh, but I still like, I still enjoy it. I'm more, I'm more bummed out that I'm not in more, like, better fit so that I can ride faster and, and farther. Um, so it's just, it's just fun. And so by the time I get to the end of the ride and I, I gotta kinda go back to reality, I'm a little bit bummed out. You know, it's, it's over. The fun is done for the day. Running is different. Running is awful. <laughs> it's not fun. It's not really enjoyable. I mean, it's a good thing and I know it, but it, the experience of running, and it happens pretty, pretty much every time I go out, I had the same route. I go up Lake Shore, up around the Lakeville on Northwestern Campus, and then back down to my house. And it's like I get to a point, at some point in the run, every time where I'm just like, I just, I just wanted this to be over with. I want to be done. This is not fun anymore. It wasn't fun the first mile, and it's not fun the last. Like, I just, my, it hurts. I'm struggling here. It's not fun. But I get to the end of the run, I finish, and if I've been able to like push myself all the way through that and carry a decent pace, I get to the end of the run, and I'm like, yes, that was awesome. I get that runner's high every time, and it feels so good. I love it. I love finishing a good run, and that feeling of walking around, cooling down, and man, that was awesome. That was good. I feel good about that. I want to go do it again. Not today, but someday I want to go do that again. And so I I think in order to, to do the run well, I think what I have to find myself like really concentrating on in the middle of the run when I'm really kind of losing interest in it is focusing on the finish, focusing on the ending and how it's going to go, how good I'm going to feel when this is all over and how proud of it I'm going to be when I get to the end. And if I continue to remind myself of that over and over and over again during the run, then it gives me enough motivation usually to be able to push through and get to the finish and feel really good about it. So as we talk about Revelation... The book of Revelation, I think that that would be a more accurate representation of some of our experiences in life. That life is really hard for a lot of us. Life is generally, it's pretty difficult. Especially when we talk about sin, it's downright agonizing. That the actual process of repenting isn't very simple at all. It's tough. It's gut-wrenching at times. It breaks relationships. It, it severs opportunities. It, it wreaks havoc in our lives when we repent of the sin and we bring that stuff out and we try to deal with it. It hurts. And so the experience of going through life and having to deal with that over and over and over again, I think for us can be really downright discouraging and agonizing at times to the point where it's easy to lose interest in even trying that anymore. But God wants us, in the book of Revelation, to think about the finish line instead. To remember that there's an end to this. There's a finish. This is going to come to an end, and when we get there, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. It's going to feel so good. And we're going to be so proud to have gotten to that finish line. And I think Christ wants us to be proud of how we went through it all. Not because we're actually that amazing at it, but because we got to be a part of something incredible. That we pushed through some really difficult times and we got to the finish. And he wants us to be excited about the finish line and he wants us, our vision and our eager to get to the finish line to drive us forward and to continue to be willing to do the difficult work of being a follower of Christ. Which, by the way, can I just, can I add on? And this is a, a side note, but 
the book of Revelation, generally speaking, is a pretty weird book, isn't it? It's weird. Like the prophecy, and as I read through it, like it's kind of nice to talk about these churches because then it's a little bit more like, okay, this is familiar. It's like the letters and Paul writes and stuff like that. But looking at the rest of Revelation, it's so figurative, so like weird imagery and stuff like that. It's just strange and it's hard to understand. But I also kind of think that's the, the awesome thing about Revelation. And I hope that as we talk through Revelation as a church and, and go through this series, that it, we don't suck all the mystery out of it, that we keep it interesting, that we keep it weird. It's like if Revelation was a, a, a city in America, it would definitely be Portland, right? Like it's weird and it's supposed to be. They're doing a really good job of keeping it that way. So I hope that as we read Revelation that we don't understand that it's supposed to be strange and, uh, and difficult to understand. We're not going to wrap our minds around everything, and that's what makes it awesome. And that finish line that we'll look forward to, as strange as everything kind of seems and as hazy as the future looks, we know that it's going to be awesome, that Christ is doing something amazing. And we get to be a part of that, and he wants us to be a part of that. And that is what we keep in mind as we look to the future and as we deal with the struggles that we deal with today. So we're talking about the church in Sardis. And, uh, and so this is the, re- the, the situation in, in Sardis as, as um, was read by, uh, by Karis. Thank you, Karis. Um, the situation in Sardis is it's a, it's a town among these seven lampstands that, that is called in Revelation. These are churches that are located in what would now be, um, they're communities that are what would now be uh, modern-day Turkey. And they're all pretty close together. Sardis kind of lands right in the middle of them. And it's a really nice community. It's a really nice town. It's pretty affluent. Things are, things are pretty good. Like, it's just a generally a peaceful, really pleasant place by, by all accounts that I was able to look at. It's located in a valley. And so there's sort of these natural cliffs and walls that surround it. This is all relevant, by the way. There's a point to this. But, uh, but there's these natural cliffs around it that kind of give it this sense of security, that make it feel really safe, that if you're going to attack this city, there's not very many points of access in. And so they, it's, it's sort of, it was a little easy to protect, very safe community to live in, by all accounts. Um, and also in Sardis, there's a, a very large pagan community that had a big temple that was sort of in the process of being built, a temple to the goddess Artemis, which was a goddess dedicated, a pagan goddess dedicated to uh, fertility and life and death. Um, and also a huge Jewish community. Uh, there was a huge Jewish temple in, in Sardis, and, uh, and yeah, just a large Jewish community that they were basically that they were living amongst. Now the church, though, the church, well, everything we know about the church is what we see in this passage. And, uh, and I think this is a, it starts out really important, and I think there's something really significant that it doesn't say in this passage that says a lot about the church in Sardis. It's in verse, uh, verse 1, the second part of verse 1 in chapter 3. It says, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. There's something that Jesus doesn't say to them that I think is a really big deal. And I'll point out what he says to the other churches leading up to this. So the church in Ephesus, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. It goes on to say, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my enemy, my, my namesake. To the church in Smyrna, it says, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, I write, I know your tribulation and your poverty, and the slander of those that say that they are Jews and are not, 
Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of, some of you into prison that you may be tested. The church of Pergamum, I know where you dwell where Satan's thrown in, yet you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. The church in Thyatira, I know your works, your love and faith, your servant, your patient endurance, and that the latter works exceed the first. And then the church in Sardis. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. All of those churches so far have been acknowledged for enduring tribulation and persecution. Except Sardis. But Sardis is a community with a huge Jewish population, and the Jews are the ones doing the persecution. So why would Sardis not be persecuted? That doesn't make any sense. If anybody's going to be persecuted, it's a town with one of the largest Jewish populations. But they're not. And there's a very important reason for that, and that's what Christ is addressing. That Sardis had pretty much become insular. They, uh, the, the scholars threw this word around a lot in the books that I read, this word syncretism. That they had become really accommodating to others. So the Jewish community, the, the pagan community, they were kind of, they didn't really oppose them at all. They didn't speak up about Christ. They didn't really do anything to, to try to bring the gospel out. They were really withheld with it. They were really shy about it. And so it, they were no threat to the Jewish community. Nobody saw them as a threat. Nobody was worried about the church in Sardis because they, were, they weren't doing anything. There were, there were no concern there, which is a really big deal, especially in a time when the church is young and it's supposed to be growing. The church in Sardis, instead of being outreaching and shaking things up and mixing it up in the community, they're hanging on to just themselves and they're focusing on other things other than sharing the gospel, other than making Christ's name known. They're really concerned of probably, and I would speculate, really good worship service. You know, really good preaching, really having full seats, really good programs, being by all measurable accounts a really good looking church. And that's what they were kind of known as in the area. They're a good church. They're, they look alive. They have the reputation of being alive. But Jesus sees through it and he's going to call them on it. He says, you're dead. You're dying. They were dying as a church because instead of letting the Spirit guide them, because the Spirit, if it's guiding you, it's going to convict you of sin. It's going to call you out and it's going to force you out of safety into harm's way. And they didn't want to do that, so instead they focused not on the Spirit, but on manufacturing themselves into being a really impressive church. And in that effort, they had allowed and made room for a lot of sin and a lot of laziness to creep into their community and, and to let that essentially define them, that sin had been wreaking havoc, but they were doing a really good job of covering it up. Remember, you are either repenting of sin or you are protecting it. And that's what Church Sardis was doing. They were protecting the sin in their community rather than repenting of it. So God calls them out. Jesus calls them out. He warns them. And this is the solution. And this is the warning that we're going to listen to today. This is our practical application. This is what we have to pay attention to. He says, wake up and repent. Very simple message. Wake up and repent. Be alert. Pay attention to what's going on. And realize how vulnerable to sin you are and how, how much is going on around you. Wake up. 
Stop ignoring the sin issues that's going on in your church and start dealing with them. In verse 2 it starts, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then that what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garment, for they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You are either repenting of sin or you're protecting it. Let me clarify what I mean by protecting it, what I'm talking about. I have some thoughts about that. The ways that we tend to protect the sin in our life. Number one of those is we let others define it for us. Instead of knowing what the Bible says and what Christ values when it comes to our actions, we let our circumstances define us. And if you want to know more about that, go back and listen to Pastor Jason's sermon last week when he said, don't let your circumstances define your sin. Don't wait until the moment to decide what you're going to do. Decide well ahead of time who you're going to be and how you're going to respond to bad situations. And that's so true that we, we take a passive approach and instead of deciding what our values are, deciding we, where our, um, our line in the sand is, we wait and hope that we make the right call in the moment, but we don't because we're weak. Because we're vulnerable to sin, we're easily influenced by outside circumstances. So when we let other people, when we let our culture, or when we let our circumstances define sin for us, we open ourselves up to a world of vulnerability. And so by not deciding ahead of time, and by not knowing the difference ahead of time between what's right and what's wrong, and how we're going to respond to it, we make ourselves vulnerable to sin, and when we make ourselves vulnerable to sin, the fact is we're protecting it in our lives. Or we're allowing it to grow. Okay. So we protect sin by letting others define it for us or letting our circumstances define it for us. We protect sin by perpetuating lies about it. We protect sin by perpetuating lies. Some example lies that I think are really common. It's not hurting anyone else. It might be hurting me, I know it's wrong, but it's not hurting anyone else. So it's not a big deal. It's not very important right now. I have much bigger concerns in my life, too many other things to deal with. I can't deal with this issue right now. Another one, I can't keep, I can keep this under control. I can manage this. I'll fight this on my own. And I can't, and I'll defeat it on my own. So I got this covered. I know it's an issue. I'm going to deal with it. I'll be able to work through this myself. That's a lie. Another one. This is a good thing. I need this. I just I need this to get through the day right now. I'll if it's a, if it's worse later, I'll deal with it. But I need it right now. This is good for me. It's helping me move forward. I think we tell ourselves that one when we when we fill our lives with activities and things that consume us and distract us from God, and then we complain that we don't have enough time to, to do the things that we want to do. And if you're wondering where I got this list from, it's my list. It's my lies. It's the ones I tell myself constantly. And I suspect it's probably you have your own list too. But when we believe in those lies, when we engage in those lies, and we make room for those lies, we just allow the sin to grow. We allow it to be present in our lives and we protect it. We make it easy for sin to wreak havoc in us. 
Because this stuff, it starts small and then it only grows. It's like an infection in our lives. It will get worse. And that was the, church, that was the issue for the church in Sardis. They, they had allowed for sin. They would made conce- concessions for it because they didn't think it was going to ruin them. And Christ calls them out for that. And he says, you're dying from this. It's killing you. And you don't even know it. Okay, and then there's one more that I think there's a lot of ways that we protect them, but one more I want to talk about, and that's secrecy. The secrecy that we employ to protect sin. There's one program that I've always thought was really, I, it just, I think it's amazing, really. The way they handle sin, the way they address it, I think it's, I think it's profound. And I've always had an incredible sense of admiration for it. It's, uh, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. I've, I've, I've not walked through the program myself. I've not had an addiction that's, that's you know, I've needed to. But, um, but I, a lot of people, some of the people that I love the most in this world have had to walk through Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12-step program sometimes many, 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 many times over. Um, and I've, I've, I've been able to see it handled and, and see it successful. And I think it actually, I think it's, it is successful if given enough time to be successful. Um, but, uh, but I, I, I always, I, I look at it and I see like some of the things that they do to address sin and issues in a person's life, I think are profound. For example, if you've ever seen it, it's depicted on, I think, movies and TV a lot when they stand up in front of the group and they say, hi, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. I think what's happening was, was profound about that. Or like it happens like in a group and sometimes we joke about it, right? If you ever send a group and you're like, hi, my name is Job. And everyone's like, hi, Job. Um, you know, like, and then we chuckle about it, but, but they do that in real group therapy sessions, and there's a, a really incredible value behind that, a really incredible purpose, and that is when we go out in front of people and we openly identify ourselves, and then we openly confess our sins, when we'll call it what it is, we've removed the secrecy from that sin, and we have rendered it so much less less powerful. We've sucked the power out of this in our lives because we've exposed it. Secrecy gives sin power. When we hide it, we protect it, and we make it grow. And it takes over our lives. So one of the most profound things we can do is tell others about our sin. Is talk about it. Find a way. And there's appropriate ways and inappropriate ways to do that. But I think we can learn something from somebody who will have both the humility and the incredible bravery to stand in front of a group and say, this is who I am and this is what I'm guilty of. And I need help. I know that scares us to think about that to, and to, to think about doing that, but I think that's what Christ calls us to. To deal honestly and openly with sin because the secrecy that we give it, the efforts that we do to protect the sin in our lives, kill us. They absolutely murder us. If you're not repenting of sin, you are protecting it. And so I, when I, I also want to clarify what I mean by repenting. Because I think there's the traditional and the correct definition that repenting is confessing your sins to God and letting Him forgive you and turning around and doing everything you possibly can to avoid ever committing that sin again and working the rest of your life to omit that sin from your life. So that's repenting, but I think there's some other things that I think 
are important that need to come along with that. Um, I think repenting or the process of repenting is going to include some other aspects that are far less appealing to us, I think. Repenting means we have to let go of our desire to be impressive, to, to have it together, to show ourselves as being well and doing a good job. We want to be known for being good Christians. That's a pretty normal feeling. And so the problem is we let that drive us so much that we hide the fact that the reality that we're all really terrible Christians. And so our desire to be impressive sometimes overtakes our desire to have a genuine, authentic faith in Christ, to be genuinely spirit-led, and to be genuinely repentant and free from sin. So it means if we're going to repent, we're going to have to let go of that, that desire to be impressive and to, to show ourselves well. Another aspect, important aspect of repenting is that we have to be ready for some of the terrible sacrifices that are going to come means we actually are going to have to address some things. And, I, and like I mentioned before, repenting does mean things like broken relationships and losing jobs and um, losing friends and losing opportunities to get ahead in life. Um, it means saying no to those or letting those pass you by or being, yeah, having to go through the shame and the humiliation of people knowing about what you've been up to. And I think that's what stops us from, from being honest about our sin. And I think that's also what kills us as a community because we allow sin to grow and wreak havoc in us. So it means that we actually have to have the humility and the bravery to be humiliated over our sin and others finding out about it because we want to confess it and we want to deal with the sin and we want to get rid of it from our lives. Okay. And I also think one important aspect of repenting is that we have to rally around each other when we're dealing with sin. That when there's others in our community who are repenting or who are struggling with sin, we have to be their biggest cheerleaders. We have to be their friends. We have to be willing to walk through anything with them. If they're dealing with sin and they're... they're addressing it and they're repenting and they're working through it. They need to find nothing but support from us. That doesn't mean we're accepting of the activity of sin, but we are going to love them and be with them all the way through it. And the reason I count that as part of the process of repentance, or I think of it as part of repentance, is because what, the opposite of what happens is if they feel alone and abandoned by us, they're going to be that much more motivated to never deal with that sin. And all of a sudden, we've cultivated an environment where people do not feel like they can talk about sin. They cannot be honest about what they've been doing. They cannot get help. And that is another aspect where we've found ourselves protecting sin in our lives and in our, our Christian community. Another time when we, instead of repenting of it, we've protected it. We've allowed it to grow and get worse and kill us. Because we didn't help each other out. Because we did not create opportunities for people to feel safe, that we weren't, we were, yeah, quick to judge, quick to point the finger, quick to, um, to take issue and to feel good about ourselves for not being in that position, rather than bearing each other's burdens. So I was kind of wondering, I, I have a story. It's a popular story. The students have heard it. A lot of other people have heard it, and I thought I would not have enough time to tell it, but I think I do, so I'm going to tell it, okay? 
Um, so I, I'm a missionary. I work for, uh, for a ministry called uh, Rural Servants. I lead summer mission trips. And uh, I've been doing it for a while now, nine years. So I've gotten to travel to some really cool places with a lot of really amazing students. And, uh, and I've had some really, thi- a lot of things happen to me. Strange things, awesome things, terrible things on these trips. And uh, one year, uh, a while back, we were, uh, we were, Bethany and I were helping to lead a team through Europe. And, uh, and we were, at, we'd stopped in a, a country called, well, in, in Croatia. And we were in a city called Pula, Croatia. And uh, just a gorgeous, gorgeous town, incredible place. And we were there to share the gospel and do evangelism and stuff like that. But I had a toothache start. It started like, it started feeling like just a little bit of pain in my tooth. And, uh, and so I, I immediately, like, I, I dismissed it. I thought, it's not a big deal. It's, I, I mean, it's probably going to go away, right? Because toothaches do that. They just go away on their own. Um, and I didn't really, there was not really any place around there where I thought it was going to be a convenient place to go get it looked at. So I just ignored it. But it got worse. It got worse and worse, like much worse. Over the course of just two or three days, it had become infected and it had grown. And so I, my cheek was starting to swell up. I was getting extremely nauseous and sick. Um, and I just was, I, I was getting really scared. I called my dentist back in the States. Probably should have done that earlier. But, uh, but I called the, the dentist and I, I told them about what happened. They said, you got to find somebody that can look at that. Um, so we did. Like, we went into Pula and my, Bethany and I went on the hunt. We had no, we didn't know where a dentist would be or how to find one. So we just walked around kind of door to door and we found one. It was closed for the season because dentistry is seasonal apparently. And we, uh, and so we, we hunted around. We found another one. It was in a weird, like, it was just a one-room shop on, in, the, in this building across the hall from a tattoo parlor. And it was this little old Italian lady running the, running the, the dentist shop. And, uh, and so we go in. We're like, and I'm desperate at this point. So I, need, I have no standards of dentistry. I, I will take anybody to look at this thing. And, uh, and she doesn't know English. Or we certainly didn't speak uh, Croatian, but she had an Italian to English dictionary. So we, uh, we were able to sort of communicate by dictionary that I had a really bad toothache. I needed help. And she looked at it and basically made a decision. This is infecting. We have to drill it out. You're going to get a root canal today. So I'm like, okay. I, I was not excited about that. That's bad news. I get in the chair and she pulls out the drill and she says, let's get to work. And I stopped her. I'm like, no, wait. You forgot the Novocaine part. And, uh, and she's like, Novocaine? I don't know what Novocaine is. We don't have Novocaine. And I begged her for anything that she might have, gas, pills, anything that will help me not have to feel this. And, uh, and she had nothing. She doesn't do that. So she opens my mouth, and she has to pry it because the infection had kind of closed it a little. So she had to pry up my mouth, and she just started drilling on my tooth. It was a bit, a drill bit that long. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Bethany witnessed everything. And, and, and she drilled out my tooth, and then when she got to a certain point, then she pulls out this little round file that she goes in and files out the root all the way down into the, to the gums. And I felt everything. I felt all of it. And then she got to the point where she's like, okay, we're done. This is it. There's no filling. There's nothing. Like she just wanted to let the, the, the infection drain out of my tooth um, over time and said, it's just going to go away now. It'll be fine. Um, when you get home, you've got to get that taken care of, get that fixed. Um, and so and we did. We had, I think we had like three weeks left of this trip um, that, uh, that I had a, a big hollow tooth that was just empty that I had to like constantly pick the food out of and stuff. It was, it was, it was, it was terrible. It was terrible, right? But the infection did drain out. I did get better. 
But uh, I use that, and I tell the story a lot, because I, I think it's a really, actually accurate portrayal of how sin affects us. I think it starts really small, and because we don't have any immediate place that we think we can go get the help that we want, I think we just try to ignore it and hope it goes away. But sin doesn't do that. It doesn't go away. It grows. It gets worse. The small stuff becomes big stuff. And it kills us. It destroys us from the inside out. And the only way to destroy a church without anybody even realizing there's anything wrong is one person at a time. And that's what sin does. It takes us away a little bit at a time and then one person at a time until it's killed us all as a community and we didn't even know it. And so I want to I close with I, hopefully some good news about this because this has been depressing. Um, so let me read uh, verses 5 and 6. It says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The message in, in the, to Sardis is that repenting has to happen. It's due. It's long overdue. And it's probably due for us as well. It's gut-wrenching. It's painful. It's, it's, it's going to hurt. Um... But it's also an incredibly beautiful thing because it points us to the finish line and it helps us get there. It's our step forward. It's how we move ahead. It's how we, if we go back to the, uh, the running you know, anecdote about looking forward to the finish line and wanting to get there and letting that motivate us, that's what Christ wants to leave us with in this passage. You are going to be on the Lamb's book of life. You're dying, but it doesn't have to stay this way. That there's this thing called redemption that God is doing, and he wants us to be a part of that. He wants us to get to the end, to be so proud of the fact that we were redeemed from our sin, and we got to be a part of watching God redeem the whole rest of the world as well. That is an incredible thing. That is an amazing thing. That, is, that, should, that should drive us forward. That should be something that we can look forward to, even if we don't totally understand it, because some of the things are a bit weird. But that is an amazing thing, and we know it to be true, and we can look forward to that, and we can let that give us courage now to deal with these things that we don't want to deal with. Repenting is the act of surrendering to the Holy Spirit and letting it convict you. And in so doing, participating in God's redemption. It's the act of looking forward to the finish line and letting God know that you believe that he's going to do the things that he's promised in the book of Revelation. And that you want to be a part of it. Repenting is not self-help. Repenting is finding life in the forgiveness of Christ, no matter what that cost is to you. Repenting is beautiful because it's life. It's accepting life. It's being forgiven. It's experiencing life when the alternative was death. So what we're going to do now, um, we're going to go into a time of communion. Um, and, uh, and so I want to read, and I think it's amazingly relevant, um, because you, communion also is being a part and engaging in the process of redemption. It's acknowledging it's repenting and acknowledging that 
Christ really did what he said he was going to do. And so I want to read out of uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 29. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread and drink this cup, or eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. As we go into communion, I wanna I wanna pray for us. Um, and I wanna I just wanna I share that passage because I want to point out the fact that I don't think Christ is saying pretty soon you got to get to this issue. you gotta, you got to start thinking about this, and pretty soon you're going to have to start repenting. I think Christ is saying, you got to repent now. You are about to take communion. You're about to participate in the death and resurrection of Christ. And he wants us to not be guilty as we do that. He wants us to come with right hearts and right minds as we approach the communion table. So, I'm going to open this up in a word of prayer, and I'm going to leave us without closing it because I want you to have a chance to think about and to dwell about what's going on in your life and what has gone undealt with. And to give the Holy Spirit a chance to convict you and a chance to deal with that sin because it's a beautiful thing to repent. And it's a beautiful thing to take communion and to participate in the redemption of this this planet knowing that we've been redeemed ourselves and that our sin has been forgiven and that we have life now. So let me pray. Father, we are genuinely sorry for our ignorance, for our disobedience. Um, Lord, for our selfishness, for our desire for comfort and, uh, and to go under the radar. Rather than mixing it up, rather than stepping out of our comfort zone, being willing to deal with the stuff we don't deal with, God. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would convict us of sin. God, and that as we, as we take communion, as we remember the death and resurrection of your son, Lord. Um, I pray that we would, uh, we would do so with right hearts, that we would be pure before you. God, that we would understand what an amazing thing, what a beautiful thing it is to be redeemed by you, and that that would drive us to be brave and humble before you.